Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient batwing doors guarding the sepulchre where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, we the brethren of the Lenses Palm, do compete to judge this off-offering cinema worthy of our esteem. To cast us down as worthless oakum, let us down as in judgment. Don the fezzes. On the go. Fez donned. <sighs> oh, that's tight and fuzzy. Ugh. Look at my fez at a jaunty angle. You come here, sir, and look at my fez, sir. You look <laughs> at my fez when I put it on my head, sir. Hold on, I need to adjust my tassel. Tassels to the side. Jaunty, jaunty. <laughs> welcome, brethren and sister, to the inaugural meeting of the Cinemania Society. Please be seated. And welcome to our listeners, to whom I will now issue this warning. We, disciples of the Cinemania Society, have studied the mysteries of the motion picture and meditated upon the silver screen for many years. As such, we have become inured to the films we scrutinize, which may contain hazards unsuitable to young and sensitive ears. As such, we advise anyone listening to do so with discretion. Nod your ears carefully, lest you develop a severe and irreversible case of cinemania. Present at our conclave tonight are Brother Zachariah, guardian of the door. Greetings. Brother Daniel, Possessor of the Word. Yes. Brother Randy, Master Illuminator. I am he. Brother Andre, Voice from the Outer World. Hey, how's it going? I am Brother Ethan, Keeper of the Lenses. I shall be serving as Pontifex of Presentment for tonight's subject of scrutiny, David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. This 1991 film is an adaptation of a 1959 novel of the same name, penned by notorious beat author William S. Burroughs. This book was immediately deemed a danger to society and caused much public hysteria upon its release. Likewise, the film should be considered a potential source of dangerous levels of cinemania. Too dangerous by far. Brother Zachariah will act as this conclave's master castigator. Brother Zachariah, read the list of charges. <clears throat> yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> Follow Cinemaniacs, as Master Castigator, I present the following charges against Naked Lunch. Use of racism, drug use, use of lemur piss, use of sexism, anti-Semitism, transphobia, homophobia, xenophobia, crimes against the galaxy, mankind, images that will be burned in... The following is a serious trigger warning for racism, drug use, sexism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, rape, violence, transphobia, and being set in the 1950s. I said we could have started with an easy one, but it looks like we're going all the way right from the beginning here. Type Gina. That's all I have to say is type Gina. <sighs> we did have to prove a point. Have I fear that you... the word orifices is going to come up quite a lot. Oh, I forgot. Oh, to I hope so. I am I am so overwhelmed I forgot to mention talking assholes. 
oh, we're going to mention the talking assholes. And, and Kafka-esque body horror. <laughs> yes. Sadly, they speak for themselves. <laughs> they do. <laughs> oh womp goodness. and womp. Have any of you additional charges to add to Brother Zachariah's list? Uh, he did mention the literary pedantry, right? Mm. He did not. I would, uh, I, would, I would add the charge of inciting people to believe that it's cool and interesting to be a harrowed drug addict hammering away at a typewriter because that's somehow going to make your writing better. <sighs> that's Need just the life card. of an artist, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Without <laughs> drugs, there's, there's, no, uh, there, there's nothing left to, no gravitas. I mean, you have to enhance your existence to truly exist. I think we should refer to this as the Chevy Chase syndrome. Uh, the moment yeah. he stopped doing cocaine, he stopped being funny. <laughs> it's essentially the Burroughs manifesto is all through this film, that if you're going to be a serious writer, you have to mess your own life up first. I and think so. uh, that's, that's very potentially well, harmful. It, well, yes, for its bookend by, you know, murdering something you love, so... <laughs> Let's add the additional Spoilers. charge of trigger warming trigger warning for uh centipedes, shall we? Oh yes. Yeah. And and uh cruelty to animals. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cruelty to the viewer. <laughs> cruelty to typewriters. But add to this list of charges. The film's love scene left me with the most awkward teenage boner in an age known for its awkward teenage boners, and that is saying something. That is a story I would like to hear more about. Oh, God. Why? Heard all you need to know. <laughs> if we are going to fully analyze this movie, I don't think so. The word it's analyze be, contains yeah. the word anal, and I am not going to say anything further. This you're is not be, a... um, You're going to be coming away from this movie lightly if you're just feeling a bit awkward. Mm. Uh, yes, we're all going to need an analropist after yes. <laughs> after discussing this and scrutinizing yeah. this movie. What do you get Tobias Funke on the phone? <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Brother Zachariah. Thank you, brethren. Uh, with that, it is time for us to turn to the cold comforts of capitalism. Welcome back. Now that we have all been reminded of the cravings of the flesh and the consumption which will temporarily sate those cravings until we all wither and die, we resume to the proceedings of the Cinemania Society as we scrutinize David Cronenberg's 1991 film, Naked Lunch. In the interest of limiting exposure and reducing the likelihood that any one of our society will develop severe and irreversible cinemania, we have divided the film into three parts and summarized each. Brother Daniel, possessor of the word, has bravely volunteered to read the first act. Please proceed, Brother Daniel. Joy. Okay, so we open with very 70s credits graphics and very noir music. So, so what does that make this then? Neo-noir? Disco-noir? Noir-noir? Anybody? I thought, I thought <laughs> the credits looked more very early 90s to me. The typeface and graphics really, uh, really struck me as, as uh, early 1990s. But, you know, there's that's really the first decade where we began to sort of recycle pop culture upon itself. The Ouroboros began then. I believe oh, we did wow. uh, note at the time that there was a whiff of Saved by the Bell in the in the yeah. opening with all the <laughs> graphics swirling around <laughs> and brightly colored shapes clashing into each other. The I know 90s. 
I know it was supposed to be that sort of like jazzy fusion thing, but I really felt like if you ran like, yeah, the, like the In Living Color theme music from that series, you know, it would have it would have fit right in with that, you know. So it's a, it's an opening that gets you in the mood for jollity and jazz and good times for all concerned. So, Brother Daniel, where does this opening leave us? Well, I do just want to say the 90s were the first time that my mother asked me, hey, is it time to bring back my bell bottoms from the basement? So that, I think that speaks to uh, Brother Ethan's um, comments about the Ouroboros. But anyway, so the movie... The movie, getting back to that, it says it's based on the book by William S. Burroughs, but this is a lie. It is based on William S. Burroughs, who wrote the book, which he based on the life of William S. Burroughs, a writer, heroin addict, and fixture of the American beat and postmodernist scenes of the 1950s. So he's a friend to other such bigwigs as Allen Ginsberg, Norman Mailer, Jack Kerouac. Oh, and he shot his wife in the head in Mexico. Uh, that is going to be a thing later on in the movie, so spoilers. Um, so we meet our hero, Robocop. I mean, Peter Weller. I mean, Bill Lee, who is definitely not William S. Burroughs, except that he is. And he immediately knocks on the door of apartment 42, which is probably not a reference to the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything. He sprays all over the apartment, but these massive fucking cockroaches taunt him when he runs out of poison, proving that Kafka will not die in this movie. Uh, so back at the office, his boss, a horribly anti-Semitic stereotype, taunts Bill, who accuses their Chinese chemist, a horribly racist stereotype, of shortchanging him on his supply of poison. At a diner, he meets with his friends Jack Kerouac and Buddy Holly, who are having a very deep conversation about whether editing is censorship. It is very deep. Our hero reveals that he has put his dark and dangerous past of writing behind him and is happy to live the simple life of an exterminator now but they clearly know something about his missing roach poison. Cue him going home to find his wife, Joan, shooting up in her breast with his roach poison. Straight in the titty. Oh yeah, right, trigger warning. <laughs> <laughs> trigger warning, right in the tit. Drug oh, use in the breast. <laughs> using historical fact, William S. Burroughs was in fact an exterminator. So this, you know, this isn't just made up. He, he actually had been an exterminator and talks about it in some of his monologues. Yeah, he speaks of what he knows, surely. Yeah, uh, right, like his wife shooting up in the breast. It's, it's one hell of an introduction to the character. Um, Maximum tits. Right. <laughs> so now we know where the idea of Botox came from. <laughs> of course, Bill's biggest concern is that he can't be the exterminator if she keeps stealing his bug poison. But when she tells him it will make him feel like Kafka, he gives it a try. And I'm not kidding. She literally says, this will make you feel like Kafka. So maybe he wants to know his enemy better. And thus begins his, you know, capital M metamorphosis. Two identical cops from NYPD Blue pick up Bill at the office to question him about his drug use. They don't believe him that the yellow powder in his spray gun is really roach poison. So straight out of the Sipowitz playbook, they leave him alone with a massive nightmare-inducing cockroach that talks out of a full-body asshole. <laughs> this, <laughs> this, is a, uh, this is a visual that probably needs some explanation because you can't just say something like that and just leave it in the air. It's not a bug's asshole. It is a person's hairy asshole on the back, like right between yes, the wings of the melody. That is a good point about the hairs. Go, go on, Brother Zachariah. <laughs> yeah, yes, about the it is a sphincter with someone who you got to admire the craftsmanship on this, went and placed 
black curly hairs around the sphincter orifice. So as it undulates, they wave majestically in the wind. The, the, Ugh, the really it amusing... is a visual that will stick with you for your lifetime, brethren. <laughs> I saw this film exactly one time when I was 13 years old and the talking asshole is an image that stuck with me. I hadn't seen this again until we watched it for this group. And that was the thing that really stuck in my mind was you have a literal talking asshole on this. Um, which I did a little research and I found out that the guy who did the puppetry, like built all the creatures for this movie and did the asshole puppetry was uh, one, you might call him a legend in creature effects by the name of Chris Wayless. Uh, Chris Wayless is known for the work that he did for David Cronenberg on The Fly. He created and puppeted Brundlefly from The Fly. He also created and puppeted all of the, well, he did the exploding head on scanners, which is one of the most legendary exploding heads in cinema history. And the way he did that is because he is also one of maybe two VFX artists in the United States who has a federal firearms license to possess a sawed off shotgun, which is how he got the exploding head. I did actually, yeah. Yeah, that's how they did the exploding head is they literally put a double barreled sawed off shotgun underneath the model and then and pulled the trigger while they were rolling at 60 FPS. That's how they did it. So if you need some kind of hideous abomination, a melding betwixt typewriter, insect and asshole, there's only one guy to call in all of Hollywood. And wait, they wait, got wait, that wait, guy. Wait, wait, and that's wait. Chris Wayless. But well, here's uh, the other thing. Here's the who other are thing. you going to call? right okay it's uh, coming back it's coming back but chris uh here's the other thing too is that the the other stuff that he's known for is even is is also really big he did the melting nazis and raiders of the lost ark that's good and, which <laughs> always you know, good I, to see a nazi melt oh yeah i absolutely fully fully embrace melting nazis nazis oh, yeah. and marshmallows two things i love to see on fire uh, he also did a bunch of the creature puppetry and Return of the Jedi. So this guy's been all over movies for decades. He's absolutely phenomenal. And um, I did reach out to him to try to obtain an interview for this show. Um, sadly, he turned us down because he can't do audio media. He, um, he has hearing impairment and it's just really difficult for him. Uh, uh, he didn't really go into details and I didn't press him on it, but um, he, he, he was kind enough to speak with me and uh, though he did turn us down. Um, so for future episodes, or should I say future conclaves, um, we, we can pull in some folks and talk to them about the work that they do. Um, that would be excellent. He can be a fellow brethren. So sorry oh, for that. be the first to uh, wish Chris all the best and to thank him for his sterling and shocking and appalling work, which has been <laughs> horrifying generations. Brother Ethan is leaving out the best of his work. He did the bulk of the practicals for House Two. Oh, oh, that is my favorite William Cat device. Uh, that film is itself a cause of cinemania. Perhaps we should review that in a future conclave, brethren. As Adding to the mummies. list, brethren. Uh, he also did Gremlins. He was known for doing all That's the. Right. Uh, yeah, mm. he's, he was buddies with both uh, uh, David Cronenberg and Joe Dante, uh, who is another of uh, my favorite directors. Um, I don't know if I would talking say. Asshole. <laughs> but yes uh he he as as brother uh, as brother andy so observed in our in our uh, uh watch party um he he has on his uh he has on his cv asshole puppeteer um please, uh, please continue <laughs> speaking of which right so 
our poor protagonist Bill is locked in a cop's office with uh, a cockroach talking out of its uh, asshole. Um, so Kafka wiggles around and humps the powder and asks Bill to rub some of it on its mouth, meaning ass play, which is even more nightmare inducing, uh, at least for Chris Wallace, the puppeteer. I, I can't imagine the reaction that day on the set. Uh, hey, Chris, make the ass mouth orgasm as Robocop rubs roach powder around it. Oh. <laughs> Come again? Uh, that's exactly. That is, if we had to ask Chris Wallace one question, it was what was his reaction to that stage direction? Um, so anyway, Kafka informs Bill that he is an agent of control and that he must kill his wife, an enemy agent of Interzone Incorporated. It describes Interzone as an engorged parasite on the underbelly of the West, which is a bit rich coming from a giant druggy ass-talking cockroach whose most important directive is that the killing must be done real tasty. Kafka hints that Joan may not be human right before Bill goes full Khrushchev and squishes the cockroach with his shoe, exterminator style. Now that you don't see on NYPD Blue. <laughs> Well, in that case, uh, once again, it is time for us to attune our senses to the siren song of our sponsors. Sing, ye sponsors. We love sponsorship. We love sponsors. We love sponsorship. La, 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 la. Buy things. Give us money for this. We have returned once again to the proceedings of the Cinemania Society. Once again, we are scrutinizing 1991's Naked Lunch. A film by the notorious David Cronenberg. Please proceed, Brother Daniel. So Bill busts out of the police station, heads down home to grab up his wife and flee town before they get arrested for dealing. He thinks he hallucinated the whole thing till she asks him to rub some powder on her lips. And at least the music gets suspicious at this point. Maybe not. He washed his hands. I doubt he did. It didn't seem like a thing they did in the 1950s. They weren't big on hand washing in the 1950s. Not manly. Oh yeah, special COVID era trigger warning: lack of hygiene. If there's one thing you get from this, it's that the 50s were way wilder than you imagine, because most media we have of the 50s presents the 50s as being a time of stead conservatism and people just uh, in black and white with way too high trousers being very polite to each other. But no, they were junked up heroin addicts and just getting it on with giant insects and having titty stabbing parties all over the place. What? And they were way worse than we generally hold them to have been. What, you didn't see that special episode of Leave it to Beaver where Mr. Cleaver's rubbing roach powder on June Cleaver's lips as she shoots herself in the tit with roach powder? Meanwhile, on this you know- special episode, Beaver leaves it to you. <laughs> Gee, Wally, I saw I saw the old man, uh, you know, rubbing uh, roach powder on Mom's asshole. You leave him alone. He's an asshole puppeteer. <laughs> well, gee, Beaver, uh, you, you got to maintain. I mean, oh, listen, Beaver, you just look out of the window at the horizon and try not to let the room spin around you when the the fevers hit. Oh no, you like gladiator movies, Beaver. <laughs> 
So <sighs> Bill, now bereft of bug powder, uh, tries to steal some from a coworker. But apparently, neither his time as a writer or an exterminator make him very good at larceny. Instead, his coworker sends him to see Dr. Benway, played by our favorite shark killer, Captain Brody. The not-at-all-shady doctor tells him to sneak a not-at-all-shady black powder made of giant Brazilian centipedes into an addict's drugs to get them to kick the habit. Uh, he specifically tells him to sneak it into somebody's drugs. Don't tell them, because consent is not a thing in the 50s. Like, <laughs> Dr. Benway is a recurring character in William Burroughs' novels, and he, it, like, it's actually some of the funniest shit that, that Burroughs has written. Some of, the, some of the Benway, like Dr. Benway operates is... is both equally horrifying and hilarious. Um, so, if you if you want an entertaining time, go uh, go look up uh, or Google uh, the best of Doctor Benway and listen to some of uh, Burroughs' monologues. It's it's a fucking dark humor laugh riot. Yeah, is it is like it, he works for my HMO? <laughs> this yeah, is this it, guy makes malpractice. You know, he, he is somebody who could not carry malpractice insurance. Let's just put it that way. And this is a terrible doctor, but Roy Scheider is just so welcoming and charming. You just want to like the guy, even when he's playing potentially a complete psychopath. He's just too nice and uh, and warm, I think the word is. I know, right? Even when he's like explaining how it all works and using nothing but like really shady bug and spy metaphors which are really apropos for this movie. And then Bill is yet again, completely unsuspicious while the music is very suspicious. Yeah, so, I have to say Cronenberg did not do Dr. Benway justice. Like he is nowhere near as nefarious and horrifying as he is in the books. Uh, although I do have to say Scheider played it very well, but like, I mean, he, he was, uh, you know, if you were expecting, you know, if you're a Burroughs lit fan and you were expecting Dr. Benway to kind of live up to the uh, standards set in the in the books you're going to be uh, underwhelmed but uh, that said please go on so after seeing dr benway and now he's got this uh special uh black powder which will cure any addict of uh, roach uh, powder he goes home where uh joan and bill's friends uh, as i mentioned jack kerouac and buddy holly are having an orgy and reciting bad occult psychedelic poetry when he gets home and the way they respond to him coming home is straight out of the room. Oh, hi, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so far, these guys have not seen anything too, too bad in, in Bill's behavior. That's going to change. But right now, they're on board with whatever Bill's going on with in his life. I, if anything, Bill's the straight man so far. Womp womp. Oh, uh, uh, spoilers that will soon change <laughs> yeah. oh, we're, gonna, we're gonna get to that so he doesn't join the orgy but he does join the drug use and now it's time for a william tell routine bill shoots jones brains out and while shaken he's not exactly broken up over it he's just upset enough to go get a drink at a dive bar as i said this is based on the life of william s burroughs not his novel naked lunch the shooting of joan appears nowhere in naked lunch the book, but it appears in William S. Burroughs' life when he kills his wife in Mexico, supposedly reenacting the William Tell routine. So, and supposedly this was a formative event for him, something that set him on the road to being a writer. The, the Joan Lee here is actually a, a, a real person by the name of Joan Vollmer, who is yeah. often thought of as being the mother of beatnik culture um, because you know her uh, apartment in New York was kind of like you know, she was married to, well, she was the common she was law. She's his wife. second wife. Of William Burroughs? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and so like you had all these guys like Ginsburg and Kerouac floating in and out of the apartment and whatnot. Um, but yeah, no, she, she was a, a real person and, um, their, their kid, William S. Burroughs III, is uh, quite a tragic tale, as one could imagine, having a parents like Joan Vollmer and William S. Burroughs. Oh, wait, 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 point, point, point of order here. Just so she was his second wife after he shot his first wife in the head no. on drugs. No, no, okay. no. Joan Vollmer was the one he shot in the head. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. I was yeah. going to think what kind of person marries someone after oh you shot your wife in the head oh that's, that's <laughs> right. fine right then okay. fled the country okay. the i'm first... gonna say that whoever her first wife was great decision the first <laughs> wife literally dodged a bullet so delivered, yeah. delivered oh. on that one. Oh. Back to the bar. Uh, so Bill reveals his quote unquote sexual ambivalence to a horribly homophobic stereotype named Kiki, because of course, Kiki. Kiki wears a centipede medallion and introduces Bill to a friend named Mugwump, who looks like a naked slimy Greedo, revealing that we are actually in the most Eisley cantina. Mugwump is absolutely not voiced by Willem Dafoe, even though it sounds like he is. I'd look this up. I had to look this up because I swear to God, it sounds like Willem Dafoe. Well, no, we just assumed it was Willem Dafoe the whole time. <laughs> it's not. It's yes. actually not. Um, it sounds like Willem Dafoe ate an ashtray, and we know that guy's chain smoked, so that's saying something. Right? So <laughs> Mugwump is uh, making love to a margarita with a three-foot-long tongue. Uh, having accidentally completed his first mission, Mugwump invites Bill to write reports on the sleazy dealings in Interzone to escape the cops looking for him. Now, before fleeing town, Bill hocks his gun for a typewriter with a pawnbroker wearing an ugly tie with Kabbalistic symbols. I'm not sure if this means anything or it's just an ugly tie. He replaces the typewriter in the window with an idol of a Mugwump feasting on the neck of a tortured human, like something straight out of a Lovecraft story. The typewriter is very important because don't forget, this movie it's about writing. And with that, I will turn it back to Brother Ethan. Um, well, I, I wonder if this might be a, a good moment for us to address the tie situation. Um, uh, yeah. Ties <laughs> are very important. That's, that's one thing we noticed. During the film, you can basically assess anybody's mental state by how hideous their tie is. The more hideous, the more in control they are. And you only really need to watch out for someone when you see them wearing either a bland normal tie or heaven forfend no tie at all, because then they're probably about to do something horrific. They will have gone literally bug fuck. <laughs> yeah, you, ne you need to either have the madness in your head or on your tie. It's going to be somewhere on your body. <laughs> well, in that case, uh, once again, it is time for us to attune our senses to the siren song of our sponsors. Sing, ye sponsors. Ad we break. love sponsors, we love sponsorship. We love sponsors, we love sponsorship. La 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 la. Money. Things money. We have returned once again to the proceedings of the Cinemania Society. Once again, we are scrutinizing 1991's Naked Lunch. Filmed by the notorious David Cronenberg. 
I, Brother Ethan, Keeper of the Lenses, have myself risked cinemania by viewing the second act of this most dangerous film. Act two opens with William Lee having arrived in Interzone, which is uh, yet another thinly veiled real life insert, this time for the international zone in Tangier, Morocco, where Burroughs himself lived in, uh, during the 50s after being tried in absentia for actually murdering Joan Vollmer, as we previously mentioned, in Mexico City um, by the exact same William Tell act that we also mentioned. Uh, hey, spoiler alert, folks, when you point a loaded gun at someone, don't be surprised when they fucking die, right? <laughs> and if it's you're America, a junkie, it happens. If you're, if you're high, uh, to, to use and, uh, Brother Andy's phrase, jizzed off your tits, don't be around firearms. Probably a good idea. People won't die that way. Especially yeah, when you're on heroin. William Burroughs' life could be described as a series of events that William Burroughs was unreasonably shocked by, considering how predictable they turned out to be. Oh, he blames this on what he referred to as the ugly spirit. And this is a, this is a guy who, even before he got into dope, um, let, let's actually take a second here. I want to point out a couple of things about Burroughs. He was absolutely the one of the most privileged people in the United States at that time. His grandfather, William S. Burroughs I, created the adding machines that be, basically became the foundation for a lot of modern computing. Um, and, you know, and, and basically like any business that had to keep track of its books bought a Burroughs adding machine in the, the late 19th century. So he came from an absolute fucking fortune. And he received, a, you know, basically he just received piles of cash um, so he could do whatever the fuck he wanted during his life all the way up until just about when he died like he he was he had an, the, the most privileged um, this is a guy born with a silver butt plug in his ass <laughs> trust fun baby was it Very a talking so. ass uh, I, well <laughs> who knows um, it definitely, uh, but but uh, one of the things about him was is that uh, he was also really into the occult, um, had gotten into chaos magic and occultism, and very strongly believed that that he was haunted by a quote ugly spirit, which was responsible for all of his bad decisions, not him being an overprivileged white kid with a pile of cash and um, you know basically bored. It was the spirit of an anguished accountant who'd been wrestling with one of those damned edition machines for his entire career. <laughs> but even uh, today, um, like the, the, I, I liken him to the uh, equivalent of Aleister Crowley, but for the second half of the 20th century. I mean, Crowley was very influential from about the 1890s to about the 1940s, and then Burroughs kind of took his place from there on. You know, really, really similar, inspired a lot of artistic, creative people who weren't themselves pieces of shit, but, you know, was a tremendous, he was a tremendous piece of shit. Let's not, let's not, um, let's not mince any words here. I mean, the guy, the guy was a tremendous piece of shit, uh, but he did inspire a lot uh, of, of people who weren't themselves pieces of shit or were, you know, maybe less severe degrees of pieces of shit and um, went on to, to do some really amazing stuff that influenced pop culture, you know, like David Bowie. Uh, big fan of William Burroughs. Um, Iggy Pop, big fan of William Burroughs. Like you can, you can point to any number of rock musicians. You know, Kurt Cobain. All these, you know, all these folks, including hip hop musicians, were really, really into William Burroughs. Um, and clearly, David Cronenberg, as we mentioned 
so anyway, so, so as we were hold on, you're just saying that Burroughs was just uh, another problematic grandpa who pulled himself up by his bootstraps with nothing but a large fortune that was he inherited. Yes, that very well put, Brother Zachariah. <laughs> Brother I think Andre if Lee. recent history has taught us anything is that if you give someone all the money in the world and no consequences and tell them to just do whatever they want with their lives, that doesn't really pose any problem to anybody else or indeed society at large. Those people turn out perfectly well. Are you taking notes, Brother Andre? Your generation, your generation just needs to work harder. I'm just going to work harder. I, it's listen, it's 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 my spending habits, not the not the tiny ridiculous wages that aren't meant to be living, but what do I know? I'm not lattes. living. <laughs> less lattes, yeah. less avocado toast. Get off your phone. <laughs> you just need to experience more failure. That that will yes. make you try harder. Great. Yeah, I'm so motivated. Yeah. <laughs> All right, proceed, brother uh, Ethan. Proceeding. Um, <clears throat> so Cold War era Tangier it was the closest thing to a real-life Moss Eisley that we could find on Earth, so a lawless hive of scum and villainy and haven for spies engaging in international skullduggery, or given Burroughs' predilection, skullbuggery. Robocop um, Lee wanders somnambulistically through coffee houses and souks, harangued by various foreign weirdos as obsessed over brands of portable typewriters as today's tech bros are over well, any given cryptocurrency. Um, so Bill Lee is ostensibly writing a report on his wife's termination, but uh, really more just as procrastinating by dabbling with psychoactive substances. So in other words, he's just being a writer. Uh, <laughs> Uh, one afternoon, while wallowing in the haze of a black meat high, Lee's typewriter undergoes uh, a Kafka-esque metamorphosis into another giant cockroach with a talking asshole and declares itself his boss slash handler and sternly advises him that homosexuality is the best cover an agent can have. Hey, well, all I can say is if only everyone's asshole boss was as easy to identify, right? <laughs> See, I'm just saying, Kafka uh, doesn't die in this film. Right, he thought he squished it in the cop's office, but here it is again. It's worth mentioning that these these references to homosexuality are there for a reason. Uh, the the international zone in Tangier was a known place at the time where gay men could basically live as gay men openly. It was a very bohemian, not lawless, but loosely policed area. Uh, it was uh, administered by several of the European powers, all working roughly in agreement. And uh, this is why Burroughs went there. And a lot of literary giants of the day went there because they could live in a way that they probably couldn't back home. And Burroughs was struggling with definite feelings of homosexuality that he didn't know what to do with. And that informed a lot of his writing and a lot of his activities. So this appears in the book in the form of... Uh, bizarre cryptic messages that are appearing in his paranoid mind state telling him to do things that he William Burroughs doesn't know how to react to just as a point out too is that uh, this being in the 1950s you know homosexuality was absolutely considered to be as as objectionable of so things socially as I don't know as murder would be well it was um, a literal is, crime yeah, you'd be arrested 
yeah, Alan Turing was chemically castrated in the UK. I mean, this guy was a hero of the British Empire for cracking Enigma and more or less creating, you know, creating the first modern computer. And yet, uh, when they found out that, oh, no, he's in love with men and actually engaging in sex with men, uh, this is a terrible thing. So we have to chemically castrate him. And that resulted in... So there's something in the way that interzone is being described as a parasitic growth on the underbelly of the West, while in the real world, the equivalent of that place was a unknown hotspot where bohemians and artists and basically gay people were hanging out all the time and had that reputation. Uh, what is the Generation Z perspective on this, Brother Andre? I mean, it's it almost feels like now I come... Well, I mean, I do come from a place of privilege. What the hell am I talking about? Um, <clears throat> coming from... Because a lot of a lot of people will be like, oh, but that was that was that was so far in the past. That was that was a long time ago. That was that was 70 years ago. Yeah. That was only 70 years yeah. ago. Don't, don't, don't be pulling like, oh, that was last century. That was 70 years ago. Yeah. Hell, I um, mean, even in the 90s, it wasn't acceptable for a while. Well, it's still not like acceptable in fucking Russia and stuff to lock you up. They're like, exactly. still do- they're still doing like stings to like, you know, catch, you know, gay people and stuff mm-hmm. or like, you know, trolling people's Facebooks and stuff and like to, to like try and grab people and yeah they'll throw you in fucking siberia still to this day we rightly castigate burroughs for his general dickishness but he was living in a place where everyone was literally out to get him and he was Mm -hmm. living effectively a secret life that he had to hide from the police and society at large who knows what that did to him mentally and Maybe yeah. that did lead into a lot of his problems. It doesn't excuse any of his behavior, Mm-mm. but it was definitely a background to who he was that maybe explains mm-hmm. part of his rampant paranoia. And I also mean, now it's it's especially more of a question about not just because back then it was more like scrutinizing men for not acting, quote unquote, manly Um and as, as opposed to other more segmented areas of the queer experience. Um, and the way that it manifests now is honestly great to see. And I, I, I've, I've obviously I've never been to the, the, the area or, or really know a lot about the area that inner zone was really encapsulating, but nowadays it's a lot of it, of course, being online because of course, you know, past two years, what else do we have to do? But a lot of the queer experience is likening, likening uh, gender identity, attraction, sexual attraction, as they're both different, um, and just turning it into, I wouldn't say a game, but definitely a lot of coping with humor, as um, a lot of my friends uh, are, are, you know, um, questioning and moving towards more demi-identities, which is more like again kind of going into the joke segment of just like i am i am not girl i am diet girl or just like <laughs> or the the question of just like are you a boy or a girl is pepsi okay you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see that we're exploring a lot more but um it and it's again it, at least from an american perspective homosexuality is greatly more accepted than it was back then again it's not not a crime but just seeing how further 
the the exploration of gender identity of sexuality of attraction continues to evolve and that pushback continues uh to well push back i mean not with laws necessarily but harassment uh uh misgendering etc cetera, etc cetera. more more lightweight but still the pushback the pushback is there as we continue to segment and explore um the the pyramid of self-actualization i don't know who actually wrote that one up i know there's a name attached to that but maslow that's what it was yeah maslow's hierarchy of needs so to uh pick up from where we left off uh speaking of of virulent homosexual stereotypes uh bill lee re-encounters everybody's favorite muscular twink kiki um <laughs> and uh in whose company he also encounters tom frost pay, played by everyone's favorite ian holm from my homeboy <laughs> bilbo <laughs> yes uh lord of the rings he played bilbo in the in the first trilogy and then he also played ash the android and alien um and uh, so, so, but he's in this movie playing somebody by the name of Tom Frost, uh, who is an effete Englishman and is very heavily gay coded. Um, so at this, at this uh, uh, coffee house, he, uh, uh, Tom Frost is in company of his wife, Joan Frost, who's also played by Judy Davis, who played the Joan Vollmer insert in act one, um, who is obviously, as she's played by the same actress, a carbon copy of Bill's late wife. Um, but let me just observe that this scene, the cybernetic te sexual tension is high as Robocop seductively eats pretzels at Ash the Android, perhaps contemplating uh, getting Judy Davis to dress up as C-3PO. And this is a very uh, seductive pretzeling. <laughs> right. And, and you have to remember, like, <laughs> Peter Weller is just like walking through this whole movie in a complete monotone. It, it's... <laughs> Like, it's, it's a choice. I mean, this is a good actor. This is not a, a, a crappy performance by a bad actor. This is a yeah. really good actor making a choice that he's going to play the entire film as vaguely intense yet very bored. Yes, yes. It is. It is not a. It is not a bad monotone. It is. It is a. It, but it is a monotone. It, it, it's like the epitome of like that heroin chic kind of attitude that you like see from those kind of junkies and was really big in the nineties too. And all of the gap ads of like Heavily all the, all the super like, yeah. You know, you remember the commercial where everyone was just like these thin, super rail thin junkie looking like teen or 20 somethings all like sprawled over each other. It was right after the swing craze of everybody mm -hmm. in khakis and running around going, yeah, it was like, we're on speed. And then it's just like, we found heroin. <laughs> everybody's bored and tired looking. yeah and this does speak a lot to the experience of hanging around with drug users because ultimately they do tend to be very boring people they're wrapped up in themselves they can't see anything beyond what the hell is going on inside their eyeballs and they do talk in a low monotone a lot of the time so it could be said that that weller is very very well presenting a junkie as being someone just sleepwalking through life which is often how they come across yeah, yeah. Um, so Tom Frost drags Bill Lee out with him to wander the bazaars. Um, and Tom confesses he's slowly poisoning his wife, Joan, using their housekeeper, Fidella. Um, but please note that this confession is made telepathically, but uh, fuck, who knows, it could just as easily have been a cover by the filmmakers for bad sync sound. 
Um, <laughs> there's definitely. I did really like this scene actually because it starts with home talking to Weller and he's explaining and explaining. And as what he's saying begins to get more crazy and he's talking about killing his own wife, he you don't notice it at first, but. Uh, home mentions oh yeah i'm psychically telling you all of this if you look at my lips you'll see that they don't match what i'm actually saying and you realize that at some point the sink has diverged and home is is saying as it were something completely different to whatever his lips are doing it's very subtle and it's done quite well i really was quite struck by that the first time i saw it uh, there's definitely at any rate a big take my wife please energy uh, <laughs> uh, it is time yet again to hear that which keepeth the lights on and the show running. Let us again listen to the honeyed word of our sponsors. We now return to the penultimate segment of our conclave. We, the Cinemania Society, return to our scrutiny of that filmic felony perpetrated by David Cronenberg in 1991, Naked Lunch. Uh, Bill wanders off to collapse on the beach uh, where he's awoken by the flamboyantly gay cloquet. Hey, that rhymes. Uh, played by <laughs> Julian Sands of Warlock fame. Uh, this is a character who is as ambivalent sexually as his native Switzerland is politically. Um, <clears throat> uh, I looked it up. Cloquet is apparently supposed to be Swiss. Not cloaca, but cloquet. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure that that is supposed to be uh, uh, the, the reason, there's reasoning behind his name being that way. I mean, and I think it's safe to enough. say that Julian Sand is pretty sexually ambiguous in everything he's in. He Wait, uh, Julian Sands wasn't the like, the German what he was there was two German guys right there was the the super clean one and then there was uh Julian Sands right no yeah, I think the he's super, the same guy no the the super clean one you're referring to is one who uh, later tells us how incredibly clean his manufactorum is right okay I I thought that was the same guy I could have it off I don't know I mean after a while like this this the characters start to blend into one another but either way, Bill Lee relates a gruesome story to Cloquet about his gay mentor, Bobo, uh, self-eviscerating in a freak hemorrhoid accident, a story which was apparently impressive enough for Cloquet to deliver a glowing report on Bill Lee to Ian Holmes' Tom Frost. Uh, so that the next time Bill and Tom meet up, Tom takes Bill aside to smugly inform him that he's totally cool if Bill borrows his sexy, seductive Martinelli typewriter. <laughs> what can i say those hyperdyne model 128s always were a bit twitchy right <laughs> yeah the relationship um, between a man and his typewriter is very firmly established in this film it's a uh, big deal yeah, oh, yeah. The, you don't fuck with another man's typewriter no it, rub another like, man's rhubarb yeah you'll get fucking <laughs> you'll get fucking whacked in the inner zone for doing that no, it's absolutely like, you know, men and their hot rods. Like, <laughs> but but write, writers and typewriters, man. Oh, yeah. The action of the keys. <laughs> they oh, like my wife, yeah, sure. Fuck, uh, fuck her, fine, but don't touch my typewriter. Whatever you do. <laughs> that's an invasion. Over <laughs> the line! 
but yeah, so like there's a, there's definitely uh, some, some intimate, uh, intimate exchange going on here because uh, Frost trusts Lee uh, with his Martinelli, which Lee brings home. Um, and uh, Lee, I guess, jonesing for uh, uh, black meat, or he believes uh, an addiction to something that does not exist, wanders off, passes out and wakens to horrific screaming so he stumbles back into the into the kitchen uh, to find his giant cockroach typewriter with the talking asshole devouring the borrowed cockroach typewriter, which presumably also has its own talking asshole. Um, and between bites, uh, apparently, the, so so his his typewriter that he exchanged in New York that metamorphosed into the cockroach with the talking asshole is called Clark Nova. Now Clark Nova tells him that Martinelli had been gasp surprise an enemy agent. And then to gasp surprise, he needs to go bang uh, Frost's wife, Joan, as part of a double cross. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to, to throw out a bet. I, I bet if this movie were made today, Matt Berry would voice the talking asshole. <laughs> I'm telling you, Lee, you need to go out and bang that man's wife. This is an enemy agent. I could see that. Uh, I, you need I, to I... run your fingers over my keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I would do the dirty, dark thing that you really want to do. I swear it's an order from another power. I'm from a right space bar. <laughs> from a space sexuality is the best cover an agent can have. <laughs> and let's be clear, these typewriters are fascinating creatures. They're brilliantly realized on screen. These are practical puppets. And how to even describe them? It's... Uh, a typewriter with this this warped rubbery keyboard with a molded face of an insect around it welded onto the body of a giant cockroach they move they twitter they have little antennae that twitch around they've got animatronic assholes on their backs and they can attack each other and tear each other to pieces and you buy it you believe you're watching true typewriter on typewriter violence whatever else you may think about it it's done beautifully I would like to also bring up there. There's a uh, deeper theme here. Um, so the Clark Nova was his original, and um, what was the name of the other? The Martinelli. Uh, the Martinelli. The Martinelli was portrayed as female, and while he was writing on the Martinelli, the Martinelli was talking to him, and he was seeming to get saner. And as she gets devoured by the Clark Nova. She says that I am your last link to what is real. But at the same time, there's that general sexism uh, and that thing going on with his head of don't trust females. They are the enemy as he is trying to deal with his own laden, you know, homosexuality. I mean, it's just, you know, levels of Freudian. Yeah, I mean, the, Freudian onion. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Freudian parfait. Uh, the the Burroughs stand-in character all the time is scoffing at the idea of being homosexual when his typewriter is telling him it would be really good cover for him to be a homosexual. He doesn't believe it. He says that's nonsense, but he's quite happy to cuddle up to Kiki. He's loving it. And he's clearly at his most satisfied and feeling normal when he's around other gay men and mm -hmm. living the gay life but he won't admit that to himself or anybody else. 
Well, well, speaking of that, of, of his fumbling attempts to continue to fuck women, um, he goes back <laughs> to Joan under orders from the typewriter and it, who, to whom he confesses destroying the Martinelli. I uh, just want to point out as he runs up to her apartment, there's a giant fire hose piled up on the wall that reaches from the bottom of the frame to the top of the frame. It's one of the, it's just a really weird thing, you notice, uh, very uh, sort of intestinal looking. He runs in, confesses to, to Joan to destroying the Martinelli, also to having periodic hallucinations and perhaps the laziest seduction never committed to celluloid. Um, like these, these two people are, are, are absolutely bored, but they're clearly also DTF. But DTF it was the lack of occult psychedelic poetry being recited over them that like kind of killed the mood. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so then we, we go to a two shot ripped off from Ghost, which had been released uh, the year previously. Um, we've got Bill <laughs> Lee played by uh, Peter Weller standing in for Patrick Swayze as he uh, pulls out a jar of black tar hair. Uh, sorry, black meat, uh, which he provides to Joan, who's standing in for Demi Moore. Uh, as they cop a buzz, he persuades her to uh, violate uh, her husband's rule against uh, fiddling with his private typewriter, which is actually an Arabic model called a Mujahideen, very elegant looking uh, typewriter for her to, to write some erotica in Arabic. Um, as Joan writes, the typewriter starts to go all soft and squishy. Oh, and as the three of them, well, that is to say, Bill, Joan, and the typewriter all become uh, extremely aroused. Uh, the Oof. typewriter undergoes its Oof. own uh, Kafka-esque metamorphosis into something out of H.R. Giger's fevered libido. And this is classic uh, Cronenberg. You have a piece oh. of technology just warping and bubbling and becoming soft and fleshy. Oh. Yeah, uh, very much uh, so. Like there's this, this thing is sort of an androgynous sex blob. I think it's referred to as a sex blob in um, the, the literature about the movie, but it's got... Like a huge, it kind of looks vaguely like a human torso with a vulva for a head and buttocks and a little phallic tail and tentacles all over the thing. And um, so it uh, it it joins uh, Bill and Jones' makeout session on the floor, flops onto him. Uh, nobody gets any satisfaction, however, because Nadella, the treacherous housekeeper Tom has been using to poison his wife, steps in. Uh, Nadella is also wearing a Dom outfit ripped straight from the cover illustration of the Big Book of Lesbian Horror Stories. <laughs> and, yeah uh, she's got and, the jodhpurs she's got a riding crop she looks like she rides humans for fun <laughs> well Don't and in we keeping all? with that look uh, oh goodness <laughs> in keeping with that look she uh, administers a little light bdsm in the form of some scolding and some shaving and drives the sex blob out of the room and off the balcony uh with the aforementioned riding crop um so our Sex blob clatters to the pavement, having transformed instantly back into its typewriter form, um, just as Tom Frost comes upon the scene and is all pouty-faced uh, over the shattered remains of his beloved Mujahideen. Tom, absolutely incensed, and his massive goon, um, whom is also sort of looks like Lurch, if Lurch were gay-coded, um, storm up to the apartment past the... Um, the now disappeared giant fire hose, it's gone. You just see the rack room sitting on it. I don't know what this means, but it's presumably some kind of allegory. Um, they run in, Bill and Joan look guilty as hell, but Tom buys Joan's excuse about Fidella having stormed in to chuck the Mujahideen over the balcony and says, "That's there's nothing about it, she's gotta go. Um, to be fair, that's not an excuse. She does accurately describe what happened. 
She, yeah, but leaving out a few, a few key things like, you know, her writing erotica on his, his typewriter and then, you know, making out with, uh, with, with Bill Lee. But then again, we've also established that the, the makeout session probably is, uh, ain't no thing, but, you know, but he used his typewriter. Can't just use another man's typewriter. No. Especially in another language. Against so, the bro code. Bros before, <laughs> uh, typewriters before ho? Oh, shit. I don't know how that would <laughs> Typos bro. before hoes. Bros before pros, dude. That's it. You nice. got it. Well played, brother Randy. Um, they uh, the the they pull up a their potted plant to reveal little bags of what look like some kind of drugs, presumably the poison that Tom mentioned when they were walking around the 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 uh, marketplace previously. Um, and this is uh, this is the means by Tom seizes upon this as the means by which Fidella has kept Joan under voodoo control. Uh, which she denies, but this bag apparently contains her uh, blood and skin and pubic hair, which uh, just kind of actually looks like a powder. You can, don't ever see what's inside it, but it's definitely, it looks like a little drug baggie, even a little Ziploc baggie. Um, I thought it was the, um, the uh, I thought it was the extermination dust from the beginning. The ext- the, uh, I mean, it contains stuff. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what the stuff is, but yeah. the idea is that, um, that Tom doesn't need to worry about his wife, everything she did. She was under the voodoo control of this random third person who was using tiny little bags of poison dotted strategically about the house to exert some unexplained form of control, which will go unexplained for the rest of the film. Don't even worry about it. I thought that was code for they, she was keeping her drugged and under her power, you know, stashing these baggies. It was described as voodoo control, but the undertext was she was keeping her like in supply of drugs, basically being a pusher and keeping her under her voodoo control, you know. Mm. Uh, the word voodoo isn't actually ever really mentioned. I just use well, that term. Um, ah, you, okay. You know. Uh, there's definitely a a subtext of the idea that women are controlling and women are behind what's going on and they're somehow engaged in some kind of conspiracy all the time because all women are presented in this film as being either not what they appear to be or having some kind of uh, alternate plan of action that we the the good men of the world don't know about it's it's very paranoid towards women later on that straight up shows them as some form of lesbian cabal that's you know oh we're getting to that (laughs) yeah yeah sounding like a pickup artist (laughs) warning yeah Um, tom uh so so tom rounds on bill and demands the return of his martinelli having nothing to write with um but uh accepts it when john says that she'll go with him yeah no i'll I'll go with you back uh she's going to go with him back to to retrieve the martinelli but instead of making for Bill's apartment, speaking of our, our lesbian cabal, Joan drags Bill through the bazaar to a shop stall, uh, wherein a black-robed individual is surrounded by a coterie of veiled women uh, and is processing black meat from a truly giant specimen of Brazilian aquatic centipede. Um, Joan points out that this is Fidela, and then we realize that, yes, it is Fidela, and uh, she cops to being under Fidela's spell and then leaves Bill to publicly make out with Fidela, and uh, take her place in the semicircle of women seated on the rug, thus completing the uh, the nefarious lesbian cabal, uh, presumably to twirl their mustaches in. Uh, yeah, in well, once again, the the women are up to something. They've got some kind of scheme going on that Bill is not privy to, and uh, he's clearly expressing a lot of paranoia here. Mm-hmm. 
Bill returns to his apartment, uh, stunned by what he's just seen, or perhaps just simply anesthetized, as he kind of seems to be. Um, all, of his all of his emoting is has the volume knob turned way down on it. Um, but he sits down to begin a report on control of the black meat trade by lesbian agents of Interzone Incorporated. Um, he uh, uh, then retreats to his bedroom to cop a buzz by rubbing black meat powder on the veins in his neck. I guess that's how you get high is you got to rub it into your neck. Um, and returns to find his uh, Clark Nova typewriter having reverted to talking asshole roach mode, uh, which now attempts to assuage his guilt over having shot his wife by confessing that Bill was programmed to kill her. Um, <clears throat> And then goes on a ramble about women being another species entirely, thus continuing our, our theme of paranoia over, over women. Um, the asshole uh, boss then wraps it up by intimating that the late Joan Lee really, really was an elite core centipede in disguise, uh, whatever the fuck that means. Um, but before it can finish its briefing, however, Tom Frost, uh, played by Ian Holm, as previously mentioned, busts in with his goon, um, who looks kind of like the tall man from Phantasm, and at gunpoint demands uh, the Martinelli, but seeing the remains of the Martinelli in uh, Lee's bathtub, he takes the Clark Nova as a hostage, stuffing it into a sack, um, and then departs after threatening Lee to give up writing and go somewhere else, um, because apparently his days are numbered in Interzone. Uh, with that, Lee bags up the macerated corpse of the Martinelli that's been stinking up the bathtub and hits the mean streets of Interzone in Act 2. And if that wasn't weird enough, just wait. It gets fucking weirder. <laughs> Cronenberg, not a man known to take his foot off the gas pedal ever for any reason at any time. Excuse me, once again it is time to pivot, nay, pirouette, to some words from our sponsors. Spin ye your yarns, O writers of ad copy. And we are returned, our heads dizzy with avarice. I shall resume my summary, scrutinizing the second act of Naked Lunch. Brother Andy, Master Illuminator, has taken charge of reviewing the most nonsensical of this film's acts, the third and final act. Take it away, Brother Andy. Well, as we've seen uh, since coming to Interzone, Will has crossed a lot of lines, but he's finally been told that he's crossed one line too many. He's been threatened, he's been told, get out of town, and he decides that's exactly what he's going to do. As we've heard, he's got the Martinelli in a sack. Now, pay attention, he's carrying a clanking sack around with him, and we believe it contains bits of typewriter. Fair enough. He decides he's gonna get out of town. We don't know exactly what he does, but the very next time we see Bill, he's in a pile of ashes and dirt, and he's just a complete mess. So his attempt to leave town has presumably failed. He's gone off to get high, and he's ended up in a ditch somewhere. Now, at this point, uh, our old friends from Act One, Kerouac and Buddy Holly, or possibly Allen Ginsberg, turned up. Why are they in Northern Africa? We don't know. They just appear on screen and they say that uh things things have got a bit out of control here bill is not hearing any of this he insists that he might look a bit rough but he's totally under control and that uh, he's got this bag of typewriter parts with him to prove it 
they insist on looking inside and it's not typewriter in there it's drug paraphernalia it's bottles of pills it's needles it's all kinds of whatnot now they uh they feel that their good friend bill has finally gone off the rails bill says hey that's my writing instrument so for the first time we get a, a comparison between drugs and the instrument of writing being one and the same in the mind of this guy just we're to make sure the metaphor is very very clear oh what yeah is very, it, what is his very much, tie uh, doing at this point <laughs> well his uh his tie was looking pretty disgustingly gross when he decided to leave town or town we thought it was all good but now he's all disheveled and it's hard to see what's going on with his tie he might even have lost it altogether mm. things aren't good on the sartorial front and bill looks like <laughs> a mess however it's uh it's not all bad news his friends tell him that they've taken bits of his writing that he's been doing all this time they presented it to a publisher who's interested bill's career as a writer might be taking off all he has to do is actually finish the work bill of course uh, decides that this is yet another conspiracy against him and they're intending to frame him for being a writer and quite viciously provide him with a career and income how dare they <laughs> well let's remember from act one he insisted that he had left all of that dark history of as a writer behind him well that dark history is catching right up to him now and uh, as the as the friends read through the manuscript they're enthralled enthralled i say by the quality of the writing he's truly coming of age as a writer and they're saying that he's got to publish his work and it is true that an early version of naked lunch was read by ginsburg in some shabby apartment with burrows and ginsburg probably helped him come up with the name of it and did push him to write more so this may be somewhat biographical the, the, uh, the guys would like him to look at the subject of drug use and writing, however. In a roundabout way, they're trying to tell him that getting high on the black meat of the giant Brazilian aquatic centipede might not be conducive to a long career. And uh, <laughs> he says in return that he'd like to offer them a hit of this one true black meat and maybe they should join him in, uh, in taking this, this strange, unclear drug. It's pretty hard to know who to root for at this point. But the boys try to get him on a bus. They uh, Now, it's unclear if we're still in Interzone because American characters have appeared. They're trying to put him on a clearly American bus. But the metaphor is that they're trying to get him to return to the real world. Bill decides that he's going to stay in the zone for a little while just to finish up his, uh, his important work. Now, just to di digress into real life a little bit, the international zone in Tangier was very formative in creating all this stuff. We've discussed how it's a very bohemian area, but it only lasted for about 25 years. So from the mid-20s up through the end of the Second World War towards uh, the mid-50s before basically it was abandoned as a concept. Morocco at the time was a monarchy that was kind of a failed state, a fallen monarchy, which is why the international powers had sort of stepped in to stabilize parts of Morocco. But uh, the Moroccan sultan was back. The, the, the European powers had just had a second world war and they decided they were going to step back from all of this. The Spanish had invaded during the war 
and they weren't technically on the side of the Axis powers, but they certainly weren't friends to the Allies, and they were a fascist state. And there was this weird tension that existed in Morocco, where Spain was the rising force controlling things, and the European powers just didn't want any real part to do with this. There was no real benefit to them being in there anymore. So Interzone, or the International Zone, just evaporated one day and became northern Morocco again. And it remains to this day a country that's uh, fully under the control of, of the Sultanate, as it were. And uh, I believe, Brother Daniel, you, you have a bit of knowledge about Morocco. Uh, well, I've been there uh, about 10 years ago, and uh, it was really kind of depressing, actually, to see what it had become from, from its uh, lauded history. Um, at this point, it's really just kind of a, a shipping port and with people living near it. Uh, in terms of, a, of the city as a residential place, it's largely been abandoned, not in the sense that there's no one living there, more like no one with any power to help anyone gives a shit. So um, that means that they mostly get tourists and sailors, uh, which means you will be hounded by children begging for money. Um, and tourists and sailors, a great combination any day of the week. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, they get along well with each other. Excellent. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's nothing but poverty. People living in, in rubble and ruins for the most part. Uh, a few shops exist, mostly to prey on tourists um, and, and similar. It's, it's pretty depressing. Um, in fact, they don't allow tourists to visit um, unless you have armed guard. I heard a similar story from Tom Sizemore um, in person uh, when I was working on a documentary with him. Uh, early last year uh, when he was working on Black Hawk Down. They were shooting that in Morocco and they basically told him, don't go outside of the bounds of the hotel or there's probably a 70 to 80% chance that you'll get kidnapped and ransomed. What, what city, did they shoot that near Tangiers or another similar city? Because I will say the, the, the capital and the nicer cities in Morocco are actually lovely um, and reasonably well they were at the time these days it's a little hard to say but i don't um, i don't recall which city he said they shot it in i just remember him saying that they'd shot it in morocco i might be misremembering but i'm pretty sure he said they shot it in morocco um, um and no, that basically serious. like they when they weren't shooting they were just at the at the hotel which he said was quite lovely but that's also where he learned to play chess from uh ewan mcgregor who's apparently mm -hmm. um also somebody who loves uh chess but anyway i'm sorry to digress too much further no, no, that, that sounds, that sounds very much like a real thing. Um, but yeah, it was my first experience being escorted around a city with uh, guys with machine guns. So to uh, sum up Tangiers, nice <laughs> while it lasted. <laughs> uh, here we go. It was uh, Black, Black Hawk Down was filmed in Saleh, Morocco. Uh, okay. Yeah, Morocco uh, extends quite far down the western coast of Africa. The, yes, the, the relatively wealthy parts are on the northern coast, but it goes into the proper desert, desert areas. So, so, going back to uh, to Act Three, uh, Bill has decided he's going to finish his great work, and not one second later, we just see him staggering down an alley, completely smashed out of his skull. He's drunk. He's high. His uh, his resolution to get to work has evaporated almost immediately without anything being done. He doesn't so know right where away. he is or why. Right away, and uh, fortunately, at this point, Kiki turns up again to to look after him. Kiki has an idea. 
maybe they can fix this broken typewriter, the parts of which are still in Bill's possession. Kiki knows a place where they repair things. And in this case, repair is a pretty relative term because it's a, a quite primitive workshop where they just melt down the poor old Martinelli, recast it in a furnace. And what comes out is it's a fleshy alien head with typewriter keys for a mouth. <laughs> Again, don't ask too many questions. This is Cronenberg. That just happened. You just saw it. It happened. It, it stares at him yeah. while he works. Well, and to, to be fair, they did give him a custom carrying case that was shaped exactly like the mugwump head. So I'm not <laughs> yeah. saying that they did a bad job. Uh, Nobody's questioning the workmanship <laughs> of this interzone foundry that can somehow recast typewriter parts into an alien head. That's not the accusation I'm making. It's not whether <laughs> they could do it. I'm questioning whether they should have done it. So anyway, Bill is left with a, a disembodied alien head. It's the same kind of alien that we saw right at the beginning in the bar, a mug one, but he just has the head. And uh, instead of a mouth, it's got typewriter keys in a sort of mouthy orifice, and it stares at him while he works, full eye contact all the time. Uh, something horrible oozes from tubes coming out of the top of its head it's all very sexual this isn't really a metaphor this is pretty blatant text not subtext this thing is just looking at him and oozing while he writes but despite uh, all of this alarming situation bill thinks that writing is not too bad on this thing and this is probably a typing partner that he can really work with once again a man's got to find the right typewriter for him uh, bill <laughs> literally milks his new friend's head tubes and makes peace with the fact that he is now an agent. And again, it's not entirely clear who he's an agent of. He's just an agent of an agency. By now, the head has, uh, in a rather stunning move, grown a full body. And it's uh, an entire weird nude alien guy just sat there casually giving Bill his new mission. Dr. Benway has been identified as the mastermind behind Interzone Inc. and also a drug pusher. And well, what matters is Bill has to go and do something about it. As always, the details are labyrinthine and conspiratorial. Bill has also made peace with the fact that he wants to sit around in Tangiers taking drugs and having sex with Kiki. Good for Bill. Benway can be contacted through Cloquet and Cloquet can be contacted through Kiki. Therefore, we immediately see Bill, Kiki, and Eves driving around in his big, wonderful car. Bill decides, and uh, this is quite a, a weird situation, that he's going to relate a long, droning monologue about a man who taught his asshole to talk. They weren't having a discussion about this. Peter Weller just erupts into this monologue. <laughs> and after a while, the, uh, the asshole started to take on a life of its own, saying what it pleased, living a life of its own, even demanding equal rights. Eventually, the asshole took over the man and the man's brain died as he became more asshole than man. This story so goes nowhere. You're saying it's <laughs> allegorical to the life of William Burroughs, huh? It's either allegorical to the life of William Burroughs or allegorical to the life of Robocop. I was going to say it sounds like Fox News, but no, it says me. <laughs> this is a uh, this is actually a reference to a passage from Naked Lunch, um, which uh, which is quite skillfully narrated by Bur Burroughs himself. If you you can find a CD from the '90s called "Spare Ass Annie and Other Tales," uh, which are a collection of spoken word 
pieces by William Burroughs with a bunch of sort of hip hoppy jazz music mixed under it. And he, he, he performs this exact story um, and it, it's something else. Anyway, sorry, please go on, Brother Andy. <laughs> it's certainly something else. And to be fair, this, this monologue is bizarre, but the way Weller delivers it is actually quite enthralling. Uh, it doesn't really advance the plot any, and it doesn't mean anything, but for a couple of minutes worth of scene time, it's really quite stunning. Brother anyway, Andy, is there a plot to advance, though? Oh, yes. It's a very simple plot. I mean, I don't know if you've been keeping up, but this is the old story. Boy meets, boy meets girl. girl. Girl injects titty with insect powder. <laughs> Cops arrest boy. Boy confronts typewriter in police station. Typewriter tells boy to go to Interzone to meet fellow agents. Boy goes to Interzone, engages in homosexual dalliance with existing writer and her wife, who looks like his wife that he shot previously. Wife tells Boy that he needs to type on an Arabic typewriter, which he does, which enrages a housekeeper who emerges in a BDSM outfit full of horse cropping and jodhpurs. She throws typewriter out a window. Owner of typewriter assaults Boy and tells him to get the hell out of Interzone. And we get to where we are now. Look, it's quite simple. <laughs> It's a narrative that's been told time and time again through the ages. Let's just go with it, shall we? I'm so tired of that Brother Andy is himself succumbing to cinema. I am so tired of this trope. Uh, one more time. And uh... <laughs> anyway, meanwhile, at Eve Cloquet's place, which is uh, quite palatial, Kiki checks out the parrots. Kiki likes parrots, and Eve likes Kiki but Bill likes the idea of meeting Dr. Benway and implies that Kiki would like ahem, parrots a whole lot more if Eves helps him out. So Eves tells him how to get to Benway. Ironically, it's by contacting the same housekeeper from before. This is uh, the one who looks like she rides men for sport. Before <laughs> departing the house, Bill notices that Eves and Kiki have, for reasons entirely of their own, devolved into a The Thing-style flesh beast together. Uh, they're inside a parrot cage, they're merged into one enormous fleshy corpus and uh, consuming of each other, just de uh, descending I, into a flesh mass like you do. I think uh, this is a reference that, that, that uh, Yves Cloquet was apparently one of the elite core centipedes that the Clark Nova mentioned earlier that, that John Lee was opposed This to. may well be an ability that elite core centipedes have, or it might just be the way you get treated as a house guest in northern Tangier, who can say? <laughs> I, th I thought it was a metaphor for a uh, cloaca or whatever his name was, just like, you know, sexually assaulting and raping poor Kiki as he just like, I mean, this was not consensual looking as those like claws and things went under Kiki's skin and like was terribly ri ripping it and Kiki like from the, from the rear as well, you know, penetrating him in a very, what looked non-consensual sort of way. I, I can mean, just see Cronenberg behind the camera just going, no, it's not a metaphor. Get the flesh beast. <laughs> yeah, yeah let's, let's not forget the statue in the pawnbroker's window. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It was yeah. basically that. It was, Oh, that's yeah. not foreshadowing. That's five-shadowing. That's, uh, <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was pretty gruesome. It was, it was just as terrible as the, like, the sex blob earlier it was well it was it, pretty terrible but i will say this is possibly the one time that the special effects can't quite reach 
as far as Cronenberg was grasping. Yeah, because it, did it is pretty... quite rubbery and puppety. Yeah. It's uh, it's you don't go with it as much as you do with the asshole talking typewriter bugs. And there's a sentence that now exists in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Well, after seeing what happened to poor Kiki, Bill decides that if he can't trust the milk-dripping alien typewriter head anymore, he's got to do something about it. What a shocker. He decides to trade the head for his old insect anus-style machine, which Tom Frost is still holding, try to keep up. Now, he contacts Tom and sells him on the advantages of the trade. You can milk those head tubes till Sunday, and it's only Tuesday, if you know what I mean. Now, by now, Bill's tie is a random assortment of diamond shapes, disgusting and clearly indicative of a fully balanced mind. Tom <laughs> agrees to the trade, but ominously also gives Bill his pistol just to give him a fighting chance considering what's to come. Tom knows that Bill's time is basically numbered at this point. The poor Clark Nova is in bad shape. They tortured it but he gives Bill the last piece of the puzzle, the location of Fidella, the lesbian dominatrix housekeeper, who in turn will give Bill the location of Benway. Again, try to keep up. Exit poor Clark Nova, taken from us too soon, tortured to death by enemy agents. Okay, Bill infiltrates Interzone Inc.'s drug factory run by the nefarious Fidela, where for reasons that really go unexplained, there's more of these naked mugwump aliens hanging from the ceiling so that their head tubes can be milked. The implication is that uh, the centipedes are working against the aliens and have captured a load of them and are head milking them in order to create drugs for reasons that really don't need to be stated. I think it's pretty clear at this point. This is an Bill oblique reference to uh, this. Is, this is an oblique reference to the Naked Lunch novel, um, where the mugwumps uh, produce uh, bas basically produce an addictive fluid from their penises, which uh, they they specifically says that they refer to it in the book as mugwump jism, and <laughs> addicts of mugwump jism are referred to as reptiles, uh, who then also. <laughs> spontaneously mutate gills out of their neck. It's, it's, a, it's definitely very, a Cronenbergian passage in the book. Um, and uh, it, this is oblique even by Cronenberg standards, but please go on brother Andy. Mm. Well, he meets up with Joan for some reason, she's there and they encounter the cigar chomping Fidela, the housekeeper, also BDSM assassin, also street merchant of black meat, try to keep up. Now, she immediately flops her tits out and then tears open her chest to reveal that she's actually been, been wearing a very Cronenbergian skin suit all along. And underneath is actually none other than Dr. Benway. So dun, we have Roy dun, Scheider. Dun. Roy Scheider comes back and he's sort of appearing out of this, this female skin suit. And he just looks like he's having a great time. He's loving every moment of it. And um, he's, he's, acting with complete dignity, considering that there's there's bits and pieces of all sorts of skin just flopping all over the place in here. And you just can't unsee what's, what's going on at this point. Now, it turns out that Benway has been planning on employing Bill all along. It's been a conspiracy separate to the initial conspiracy that works around the overall conspiracy as an adjunct to the main conspiracy. So he got him hooked on black meat just for the purpose of drawing Bill in. And it's been, um, 
under the guise of, of this investigation all along. Benway wants Bill to do something undisclosed for him. It's not clear what working for Benway means, just that it will involve doing tasks of some kind. And Bill agrees, as long as he gets Joan, fine. Benway doesn't really care about that. He's quite dismissive of Joan. And he actually acts as if it's a, a weird thing to ask for the woman. Why would you want her? What can she possibly do for you? Okay, if that's your cup of tea, fine, take her, I don't care. That's how he, he comes across in this moment. So we change scene again. Suddenly, Bill is uh, traveling across a vaguely Soviet landscape in this really quite charming half-track van thing that looks like it'd be so much fun to travel the country in. Yeah. And he's heading for the uh, vaguely Soviet nation of Annexia under the orders of Benway. And he's going undercover as a writer at the border to vaguely Soviet guards, ask him what he does for a living. And they don't believe when he says he's a writer, that he really has what it takes. They want him to prove that he's a writer. And of course, there's only one way to do this. Jones in the back of the van, he turns around to her and says, hey, it's time for the William Tell routine. And uh, it's also time to see whether Robocop's targeting system has been properly aligned. Turns out it isn't. He shoots her in the face and she dies. The guards are delighted. He's proven he's a writer so he can enter Annexia. And off he goes to do whatever it is Benway wants him to do in Annexia under the cover of being a writer. He's proven himself and he's entered into the life fully of literature, as it were. We <laughs> see a single tear of writerly sadness come down... <laughs> Peter Weller's face and the film comes to a close after this satisfying conclusion which I feel ties all of these narrative <laughs> strands together quite neatly alright alright bravo bravo well uh, thank you brother Andy with that, uh, let us take our final ad break and when we return we shall render our judgment as to whether the film is guilty of the charges level And we return to the final segment of tonight's conclave, judgment. We, the Cinemania Society, shall render judgment on David Cronenberg's 1991 film, Naked Lunch. What say he, brethren? Is Naked Lunch guilty of being a source of Cinemania? Well... It's definitely very Cronenbergian. I mean, if you ever needed a Cronenbergian film, this is absolutely a Cronenbergian film. So you're going to have to de just decry the man and all of his work if you decry this film. And <laughs> yeah, this beats the gooey stuffing out of existence. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Scanners was nothing on this. <laughs> I would just like at, to take a moment to just say that while we're investigating Cronenberg, we should also look at the career of Peter Weller in the late 80s, early 90s, where he starts with Buckaroo Banzai, goes to RoboCop, RoboCop 2, then Naked Lunch. I think so the man is responsible for Cinemania himself. You're saying he goes from action hero of the 80s to inaction anti-hero of the 90s. 
Well, everyone remembers when RoboCop shot that guy in the dick. Oh, and that is a well-known sense of cinemania. That and when that mutant gooey guy who fell into the radioactive jar got hit by the van. I'm saying that Peter Weller and David Cronenberg together, this is definite cinemania. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to look at a typewriter the same way again. It's given me a <laughs> visceral a need rap. to stroke my fingers over keys sensually and just hope that the thing starts breathing and talking to me. People still own typewriters? <laughs> a certain arousal. <laughs> oh, listen to Mr. Gen Z over there. Yeah, typewriters <laughs> are still a thing. Have you ever seen Tom Hanks's Twitter feed? <laughs> Say he, brother Andre. <laughs> What judgment have you to render? Do you need to watch this film? You could certainly go through life never knowing this film existed, <laughs> never having watched it, and have a pretty fulfilling life, I'd say. Okay, would venture, <laughs> How would you venture uh, somebody who has been subjected to this film? Um... Uh, lots of water, lots of copious substances. Um, what else is there? What else is there to really say to console the soul after having consumed this media? What would be sufficient? I'm still pondering. I've been pondering this myself for going on 30 years and, and uh, I have uh, nightmarish imagery from this film lodged in my brain irrevocably. I would say it has in my experience, this film has caused, uh, as it is one of the films that, that has inspired me to pursue a career in the film industry. So in me, at the very least, it is one of the sources of Cinemania. It has caused a severe and irrevocable case of Cinemania in my instance. So I judge it guilty. Guilty. I guilty. Hmm. Is it a good film? No. Is it a well-made <laughs> film? Iffy. Is it a narratively coherent film? Absolutely not. Is it a necessary film? No, certainly not. Is it an apposite film? No, no, no. Is it an erotic film? God, I hope not. <laughs> is it a cinemaniac film? Yes, I think it is. <laughs> Guilty. You see, from my experience on the internet, this film, at least once, has awakened something in someone. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> so that's what I wanna, I wanna drill into here. So I think the film has value and I'll explain why. So to me, this film sits at the same level. It's, it serves the same purpose as Atlas Shrugged, right? I'm glad that I've read Atlas Shrugged. I'm glad that I've seen Naked Lunch because now when I go to parties, right? and I have a conversation with someone, I can bring it up. It's a litmus test. And not to say that anyone who has seen this film and likes this film is a horrible person. I mean, they are, but, <laughs> um, but how they react to the film or how they reacted to Atlas Shrugged tells me a lot about the person, right? If it's just like, oh yeah, fuck yeah, Bill, you know, Bill Lee, like he's my hero. Yes, that's what writing is all about. I take two steps back. <laughs> It's like if you talk music to someone and they tell you they're really into Coldplay, you know, to get the fuck away from that person. 
I mean, but admittedly, if somebody says, oh, I watched it, I really enjoyed it, or I liked it, or I found it interesting, and they can explain why, and it doesn't involve, yes, this is the way writing life should be. Okay, cool. I can have a conversation with that person, too. I don't have to take two steps back yet. <laughs> it's like, ironically, the one group of people who probably won't like this film very much are William Burroughs fans. Because if you've read enough Burroughs to get all the references, you'll also be saying this doesn't go far enough and this doesn't do enough to get across the prose and is just a diatribe about Burroughs himself. So the people this film is designed for are probably going to be the worst castigators of all. There's surprisingly little of William Burroughs's writing or plots in the book. There's some characters, mm. but it's mostly William S. Burroughs' life. In, yeah, if you're, coming uh, to this as a, if you're coming to this as a Burroughs fan, a Burroughs maniac, one of those guys who sits around in cafes talking Burroughs with other Burroughs people uh, in yes, a Burroughs borough somewhere, then yes, right. yeah, it's, you're, you're going to be saying this film isn't for you. Well Speaking of which, that's Burroughs another litmus I... test. <laughs> I, I do have to say that this film served as my entree into uh, the writing of William S. Burroughs because after seeing this movie and not understanding what the fuck I had just seen, I went to go find the book at uh, the bookstore where I hung out and uh, uh, had basically free reign of whatever books I could lay hands on. Uh, got a hold of a copy of it, tried to read it. It could make even less sense out of what I was reading. <laughs> I, 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 I am quivering with Cinemania here. Why the fuck is it called Naked Lunch? I've watched this whole goddamn movie. I do not understand. Why the fuck is it called Naked Lunch? It is perplexing. It is making me vibrate and, oh, why? Well, William Burroughs did provide something of an explanation for this. And it's uh, But very... in the movie? In the movie, was there an explanation in the movie? Did I miss it's, it? It's not about lunch and it's not about nudity. And this is also why it's not called the naked lunch. It's just called naked lunch. William Burroughs wanted to explore the idea of getting into the reality of something, stripping it of all pretension, making it naked. And lunch, he felt, was a time when people are eating and vulnerable and together. And it's, it's sort of implying that this is an exploration of the, the real shit that goes on underneath everything. How, it's both naked and it's at lunchtime. How the fuck was I supposed to get that? Look, it's a so simple it's completely story. This is a narrative a that's been around for centuries. Boy meets girl. Girl is injecting uh, a yes, yes, yes. powder. So it's just completely arbitrary. <laughs> we all know the trope. So, so wait, so there's, there's a bit of a, there's, there's an odd difference of, of explanations, actually, uh, amongst Burroughs himself, right? So um, Burroughs at one point said exactly what Brother Andy was getting at. It's the, the exact words, uh, according to Wikipedia, were, uh, it's a naked lunch, meaning a frozen moment when everyone sees what is on the end of their fork, right? But he also has claimed in the past that it was a misread by Ginsburg of Naked Lust, Okay. Oh boy. Which that makes a little more sense. I mean, yeah, they only said naked lunch the one time and we were all like, oh, that's that's the title, and that was it. <laughs> I, I missed it. Apparently. They said the thing. They, they, said, said, the thing. they said the name of the movie in the movie. Oh my god. Before your generation, kid, people didn't need to announce the name of the movie in the movie. That's a relatively new idea. And so that I don't think we'll carry it. It's on. like in Star Wars when Luke says, I am just so sick of all these damn Star Wars. I mean <laughs> <laughs> so you're all you're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, just that as a shock big... sure does have some big jaws. <laughs> <laughs> as a as a warning to anybody who might be inspired to read this book, either by watching this movie, listening to this podcast, or both, um, it the book is not intended to be read in standard book fashion. If you where you pick up a book and you start at the beginning and you commence to reading and you keep reading until you reach the end of the book, at which time you then put it down and possibly think about what you just read. No. No, no, no. This is intended to be read by picking it up and reading random passages in some possible drug-fueled haze where you can't remember what part of the book you were at or even really care. You just pick it up and read some sections of prose and then reflect on what the fuck did I just read. Uh, that is apparently the in intended way in which one is to read that book. Literary navel staring. Ugh. Well, sort of. What, and what that's what, yeah, what that's led to is a certain almost cult-like appreciation for the book, where people consider it more of a Bible, where they just carry around with, with carry it around with them wherever they go, and they just pick it up when they're feeling inspired, read a couple of passages, and now they're feeling even more inspired to do drugs. Well, wasn't <laughs> was something why he was we, on SNL in 1980? Something we never. He? Yeah. Wow. Really. Yeah, huh. Burroughs was on SNL in 1980. He, uh, There's an episode find... I need to go back and watch. Yeah, you can find it. It's on YouTube. He reads a section, uh, a doctor, the very first appearance of Dr. Benway, actually. Um... They never invited him back because they found him making love to a typewriter in his dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. We're canceling Burroughs. Well, he would have got away with it, but it was Lauren Michaels' typewriter, so... <laughs> Beat me to it, brother Zachariah. I was just thinking, like, I'm trying to imagine in the Lorne Michaels voice, right? Like, what are you doing? He got what his leavings all what? over the keys. <laughs> what are you doing to my typewriter, Burroughs? Is it evil? <laughs> you know, Dr. Evil was based on Lorne Michaels. Okay. I did not know that. You didn't know really? that? Really? Yeah. No, I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, yep. he's, uh, Mike Myers has been very vocal about that. Dr. Evil is his Lorne Michaels impersonation. So much that he even had Lorne Michaels doing the Dr. Evil bit on SNL. Oh, that's great. So, so tangent. I did want to bring up um, something we didn't touch on was this was the last book that you could get arrested for owning in certain states in America based on profanity laws that were in place mm -hmm. until the, what was it, mid-1970s, I believe? Yeah, late 60s, early 70s. It was yeah. uh, the, the laws, even, even by that time, people were rapidly starting to realize these laws were unenforceable and they were never really carried out. But this book actually got people incised enough that they're going to do something about it and try and find some kind of a law that they can bring to bear to get it banned. And they nearly succeeded in some parts of America for a while. But now, glory be, we can all enjoy <laughs> William Burroughs as he intended, jizzed off our tits and just tearing out <laughs> random pages and slapping them against our faces in the hope that some kind of knowledge will osmotically pass into our forebrains before we all gather together to nosh down on a hearty diet of the one true black meat of the giant Brazilian aquatic centipede, which I feel is the way it ought to be. Mm. God bless America. <laughs> so oh, let boy. us review once again our judgment. I deem this film guilty of causing cinemania. I too stand with a guilty verdict against David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. Guilty. Guilty.
I'd say valuably guilty. <laughs> I'd say it's naked, it's lunch, it's naked lunch, and it's guilty. Uh, right. Yes, then. Brethren, let us deconvene tonight's conclave. Let us lock the doors of the video store in the strip mall of the damned, and then let us return again when we have identified another potential source of cinemania. So to you, I shall say good night, stay safe, and as always, beware of cinemania. That must be done, which we all know must be done. As we all know, it must be done, clearly. Deploy the pamphlets. Pamphlets deploying! Brethren, thank you for your time and attention. In due time, we shall call another conclave to scrutinize another film to determine its relative danger to the minds of the public. But until then, I hereby declare this meeting of the Cinemania Society to be adjourned. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Ethan Ireland, Andy Slack, Zachariah Burks, Daniel Scribner, and Andre Luke Martinez with mixing and mastering by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemediasociety.com and check out our social media feeds where we are at the Cinemania Society. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and review us wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Coffee or Patreon to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like, so stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC, and is distributed by iHeartMedia. <laughs>